Many are the path to truth. Truth is one and eternal, realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. On the dedication page of Swami Kriyananda's book, The New Path, appears the following account. A group of Paramahansa Yogananda's disciples had gone with him to see a movie about the life of Gyandev, a great saint of medieval India. Afterwards, they gathered and listened to the master explaining certain subtler aspects of that inspiring story. A young man in the group mentioned another film he had seen years earlier in India about the life of Mirabai, a famous woman saint. If you've seen that movie, he exclaimed, you wouldn't even like this one. The guru rebuked him. Why make such a comparison? The lives of great saints manifest in various ways the same one God. The Bible contains a similar account in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9. And John said, Master, we saw one casting out devils, devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, For him, forbid him not, for that is not against us, is with us, is for us. The more central a truth, the greater the number of contexts in which it can be applied. The truth is like a pure white light containing within itself the full spectrum of the rainbow. Let no, let no one tell you what your path to God ought to be. Many are the paths. Select your own according to the dictates of your own nature, no matter how out of step that puts you with other people. Sri Krishna, in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, Trying even unsuccessfully to fulfill one's own spiritual duty, dharma, is better than pursuing successfully the duties of others. Better death itself in the pursuance of one's own duties. The pursuance of another duty is fraught with spiritual danger. Thus, holy, through the Holy Spirit, God has spoken to mankind. Om. Om, Om. Good morning, everyone. My name is Atman. This is Bhakti Marg. It's our pleasure to share a service with you this morning, this fine fall morning. And we'd like to especially welcome those who are with us as guests today, whether at the Expanding Light, uh, the meditation retreat, or from anywhere else. So welcome, and those on the internet as well. I'd like to start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, which are prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Demand to travel by the one highway of realization. Our one Father, we are traveling by many true paths toward thy one abode of light. Show us the one highway of common realization where all bypaths of theological beliefs meet. Make us feel that the diverse religions are branches of thy one tree of truth. Bless us that we enjoy the intuition-tested, ripe, luscious fruits of self-knowledge hanging from the many branches of true scriptural teachings. In thy one temple of silence, we all sing to thee a chorus of many-voiced religions. 
Teach us to chant in harmony with thy love's manifold expressions. That our chorus of souls rouse thee to break thy vow of silence and lift us onto thy lap of universal, immortal understanding. About a week ago, and then previously the beginning of July, we had a number, a couple of different wonderful ceremonies in this temple to help dedicate this temple of light, where we especially invited members of other faiths from the interfaith community. And I think uh, all of us who are here was a, just felt a real blessed energy, a real inspiration. And as you can see in this temple of light, we have altars on the side to represent a number of the other faiths of the religion, uh, other religions of the world, of uh, Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, self-realization, and then the sun or light that represents all the other unnamed or yet undiscovered religions. So what does that have to do with this temple, with this path, with Yogananda? Why are we doing this? Is this just something to help keep our neighbors off our back so that they feel like we're not so strange? <laughs> now it's something much deeper than that, much different. It's something that came from Yogananda himself. So when Yogananda created chapels and temples in Southern California and some in Northern California, he named them churches of all religion. And why did he call them the churches of all religion? Well, he used the analogy and he wrote in East West Magazine at the time of the dedication of the Hollywood Temple, which was the second temple after the Encinitas Temple. He said, well, think of it this way. When you're walking through the city, you're hemmed in by walls all around you. You don't have a very good view. You can't really see very far. But when you rise above and you get up in an airplane, you can see the vast vistas and that little, those little narrow alleyways dissolve and you're in a much broader perspective. So it's the same thing when he said, when we're walking down the theological streets of dogma, that said dogma are the walls that close us in, that keep us from understanding that broader perspective. That's what most religions are. They're walled in by those dogmas. But the church of all religions, he said, is a way to rise above that, to rise into the airplane view and see that one truth that's all the way around us, <coughs> that's everywhere. And he said, when he created his churches in Hollywood, he put in two pulpits. One on the left was for where he spoke and other ministers of the Self-Realization Fellowship. He had another lectern or pulpit on the other side, which was for other ministers of different religions. It was interesting, Swami said, to his knowledge, no minister from any other religion ever spoke in that other pulpit. And so what was really going on? What, what Yogananda was doing was trying to create a symbol. He said, you know, all people of all religions should come visit our churchlets. He knew, he knew they weren't very big churches. He knew that this congregation wasn't gonna grow, but he put that symbol there. He said, this churchlet is a symbol of where religion needs to go. Where we, need, we don't need any new religions who have these fanciful ideas, new fanciful ideas of truth. What we need to do is to get to that basis, the basis where all religious inspiration has sprung from, 
what all these religions at one point come back to, and it's that truth that's grounded in experience. And that's what he put out in his churches. He said, you don't have to leave your religion. You don't have to relieve, <coughs> leave where you've grown up with. Because remember, especially 75, 80 years ago when he was founding these te churches, I think the religious institutionalism was much stronger than it is today. The people were usually born into some religious faith. People didn't necessarily question that, that there was a lot of cultural elements that came into that. And he said, you don't have to leave that. But what you do have to leave is this reliance on a dogma. A dogma is just a, a definition of a spiritual truth. And he said, what well, he's especially against is dogmatism, where the dogmas start constricting that reality, like those walls in the city. They're the ones that hem you in, and you can't see beyond that. So what we need to do is to get to that basis. And that's what he came to show. He came to show that that inspiration from which sprung all these various institutions and religions is the same one. And if you follow true religions to their conclusion, you'll end up at that truth. You'll end up at that oneness of, of knowing God, of being able to, to feel that <coughs> presence. He said, we need experience. We don't, we need churches to stop trying to feed dogma. He said, especially to the young, because the young these days are steeped in the scientific worldview, and dogmas are very hard to accept without having some investigation, without having individual experience. And he encouraged people. He said, test these things. Go in there and look for your own experience. And that's what the church of all religion is. It's allowing people to come together, to leave behind these, or at least to open themselves to looking at other inspirations. Many are the paths but they lead to that one truth. So it's not necessarily that because we put this out there, because Yogananda did, because people have started to understand this more and more, that the institutional religions have given this up. You'll find still that there's many, many, many people who hold to their dogmas. And there's sometimes a bit of lip service to you know, we're not condemning people. I mean, it used to, you know, some people, if you're not in my religion, that's it, you're condemned. You know, we've gone, a lot of people, we've moved past that, but it's still an ongoing thing. We're at the beginning of a new age, and this religion has come through Kali Yuga. It's Kali Yuga, the dogma, the dogmas, these definitions of truth were the bulwark on which institutions of religion were built. And without those bulwarks, without those foundations, they probably would not have survived through the dark ages, through a time of very limited understanding, through a time of not much realization. And so it was those firm, fixed beliefs which held people and which were important at the time. But we moved into a new age and they're much less important and we're in a period of conflict. There's an interesting anecdote that uh, Swami Kriyananda was in Assisi, Italy. We have a center in Assisi that was founded in the 80s, and it's a retreat center, and there's a congregation. And Swami was visiting there, and he lived there part-time, and he would often tell people, he encouraged people, you know, to go to the mass, that you don't have to leave the Catholic Church, that you're, you know, this is not a new religion, this is just something that can help you go deeper in your 
express faith. If you're especially in Italy, if it's a Catholic faith, that's fine. Well, then a magazine in, or a newspaper in the area of Assisi published an article that was critical of master's teachings. And it was critical of what they called the syncretism, which is the trying to meld or bring to a union disparate beliefs or disparate truths, especially in religion. And they were condemning that in master. And so Swami sought out the bishop of Assisi and he said, look, you know, let's have a talk. Can we talk about this? And so he started explaining that, you know, master's teachings were not just a patchwork quilt of, of disparate beliefs, trying to sew them together into something different. He said, well, what master's really trying to do was to show that the underlying truths are the same, especially from Hinduism and Christianity. And then he said, you know, having this unitive view has really helped me as a Christian. I grew up in a Christian church. I consider myself a Christian. The bishop said, no, you're not. You're not a Christian. And Swami said, yeah, yes, I am. I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not. And Swami said, well, kind sir, I'm not sure that that's for you to judge whether I'm a Christian or not. That might be more between me and Christ. He said, yes, it is. I can judge that. He said, well, where, what are you talking about? He said, well, to be a Christian, you have to have three main things. You have to take the Eucharist, you have to uh, go to confession, and you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God. And Swami said, well, okay, let's take the first two first. He said, what about the early Christians? They didn't have the Eucharist, they didn't have the confessional, and what about the Protestant brothers? You know, many of them also do not have a confessional. And the bishop, apparently not wanting to be too antagonistic to his Protestant brethren, said, okay, well, you know, let's, let's look at the third one, though. That, that's the important one, that you have, to, you have to feel that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, and, and he's your Savior. And so then Swami took it upon himself to explain to the bishop Master's teachings on the one Son of God and what he felt that, or what was meant by that, that it's the Christ consciousness. It's not the man, Jesus, who was the one who brought that truth, and that is the one son. We all have to go through that realization, the Christ consciousness. And the bishop just sort of stepped back and looked at me and said, that's nothing short of heresy. And there ended the conversation. And so Swami said, you know, you try your best, you go with goodwill, you need to explain, you need to explain our point of view, you need to not condemn other point of view. But in many instances, it doesn't make that much sense to try to enter into a rational debate on these dogmatic pillars of some of the beliefs of other religions. He said, why? Well, he said, look at Christianity. Christianity for 2,000 years has had the most brilliant minds of Christendom trying to weave and make sense out of these dogmas, out of this dogmatism, these rational beliefs. And they've created such a closed, tight network that you're not going to get in there with a rational thought. And you should, it's better just, just leave it. And so you can move forward and you can say, there are you know, many, many different religions. You can create altars to different religions, but you have to be clear about at what level we can even start talking about in an interfaith dialogue. 
That was what was so uplifting about when we had our, our dedication here, especially in July, the people that came. They all talked about a one unitive consciousness God, a divine. They talked about that that one consciousness, that divine was pervading the whole creation, the whole of the universe, that we had a kinship and a compassion with all beings, with all living things, that that connection could be known both to other living beings and to the one, one God, that you could, you could improve your knowing that there were many facets to this jewel of, of God and that knowing could be improved through many of those different facets. In other words, they were clearly of the belief that there's not only one path to God, that there is validity in all these other religions. They also, uh, one other basis of a, this interfaith dialogue that Master was this, this basis of truth that Master was proclaiming was that the saints are the true guardians of religion. That it's, he said that um, at some point in the future, religious institutionalism will progress to the point where people are just going to those who are actually practicing, who are actually drawing on the presence of God, who are actually feeling that inspiration. They will be the ones who will be the inspiration, the ones to be giving this true religion. So we're not necessarily all there yet, and that's fine, because it's just, it's also extremely important to not <coughs> disparage or to cut down any other religion, to criticize that. People are where they are. We can come and come together on what's shared, what we can understand, and if there isn't, if there are these differences, let them be, because you know there are very, very differences, very, very big differences in the pillars of faith of many religions about the nature of the soul, what happens after death, what's the nature of God, how can you approach God, what's the best way to do that, what is the role of a, a minister or a, another person, intercession with God. There's some big differences still. And Master said, it's fine, you know, just let people go. He said that one of the big reasons for a church of all religions for urging people to get together, he said, you know, we're all crazy. We're all crazy in our own way, but we mix with people of the same craziness, so we don't tend to see our craziness. So let's mix with people of other craziness, and then maybe we can start to see, said, oh, yeah, maybe that is a little crazy in this way. So he encouraged people for that reason to come together and to, to form these other churches of all religions. And he, you know, he wasn't the first. This is a, it's a very important movement in, as we move into Dwapara Yuga. Another uh, example of someone who professed that, who really practiced that was the great saint uh, Ramakrishna Paramahansa. He was a saint who lived, a Bengali saint, who lived the latter part of the 19th century. And he stayed mainly in Dakineshwar, which is uh, a chapter in the autobiography of a yogi where Master visits there. It talks about that temple. That was the temple where he lived. And he was a, he was a very simple, down-to-earth uh, person, but he was a, a person of great realization. And 
at one point he came to live at this temple and you know enter into these practices he said you know I want to see if there's a reality if there's a basis in all these different religions and so he started first with the different sects of Hinduism because at that time there were just like in the Protestant church the, the Christian church there are many different practices in the in Hinduism the the Vaishyas, the Shaivites, the, the Vedantas, the Advaita Vedanta, Vaita Devanta, there's many different branches. So he would go and study a particular branch. He would study it, he would enter into those practices, he entered into that way of thinking until he had an experience of the divine. And then he would try another one. And he went on to Islam, he practiced the practices of the, the Muslims, he practiced the practices of the Christianity, of the Christians, and he said, I can add my testimony to all those that these, there is a true basis in all these religions, that there is something that is, you know, that you can, we can all arrive at that one truth through these different practices. And he didn't try at all to synthesize those practices. He just said, you know, if you're looking for a realization, if you're an Islam or a Hindu, continue, if you're a, a Muslim, continue with your prayers, but also continue with meditation. And he would bless, you know, he would, and Muslims would come to him and he would bless them and he would initiate them in meditation techniques. And this was a very radical thing for that time. And then his disciple Vivekananda furthered that. And then, of course, Master coming to this country picked up that torch of, with his churches of all religions. And another very important thing that they both said was, you know, don't focus on the differences. It's not that important where things, where we disagree, where we don't all have the same belief in this. What the real enemy that we're fighting against in this age is materialism and atheism. That what we should really do is be uniting ourselves in that brotherhood of looking for God, of ex trying to experience the divine, of searching for the divine, and unite ourselves in that energy and fight against the, especially Master spoke a lot against the uh, godless communism about the countries of the East where the church had been completely, any church had been completely taken out because of the Marxist belief that you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And Master spoke very, very strongly against that. He said the challenge that Satan in this age is really working through this sense, these materialistic, this delusion of materialism, of atheism. And it uh, brings to mind a story uh, that Yogananda put in the autobiography that he was walking in Calcutta near the Howrah railway station and he passed a temple and he heard this rather concoctionous noise coming out of cymbals and drumming and he, you know, he sort of stopped and had a critical thought to himself. He said, oh, you know, what a, what a poor rendition of this chant and these, these people are they're blaspheming the Lord's name by you know, singing without any devotion. He couldn't detect any devotion. Just at that moment, who should come by but his, his tutor, Master Mahashaya, who was, incidentally, uh, one of the foremost disciples of Ramakrishna. He said, oh, and you know, Yogananda was very surprised. And he said, oh, little sir, isn't the, the voice, <coughs> isn't the name of God sweet in any language, whether it's sung by the ignorant or the wise, the name of God is always sweet. And Yogananda said, yeah, no, okay. I, st <laughs> I stand corrected that it's, it's not the enemy. They are at least looking for God, whether they're 
perfect in their way of doing it or not, it doesn't matter. So in our reading this morning, we talked about you know, finding the path. So you know, there's a validity to all these religions. It may be something that you were born in. It might be something that you chose to, to move into. But that, that path, it needs to be something that we, we choose ourselves. This is unlike most institutional religion. Most people are born into a religion. And there's a saying that it's, uh, I think Ramakrishna said it, it's a, it's a blessing to be born into a religion, but a curse to die in one. So you need to not take whatever that cultural gift has been, not take it for granted, but to start looking for that individual search. And this is very much in keeping with Dwapara Yuga. Dwapara Yuga, it's much more about the individual. It's much more about our own experience. It's much more about the energy of what's going on rather than the form. And it's, it's much more about finding what it is that, that speaks to me. And Yogananda brought a path. He says, you know, keep your other beliefs, that's fine. But he taught above all Raja Yoga. And he said, there's of course different aspects of yoga depending on your nature. There's Karma Yoga if you're drawn more to service, more outward, Bhakti Yoga, if you're more of a devotional type, he said, especially, you know, you can keep the devotional aspects of all these other religions. And there's a Jnana Yoga, which is the philosophical. But he said, you know, Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga with a foundation in meditation, with a foundation in integrating body, mind, and spirit, of paying attention to the flows of energy, of how those three bodies are actually integrated and what happens during it, what, what is experience? What is the process of upliftment of consciousness that is the basis of all these religions? But if you focus in on that process of upliftment of consciousness, you'll be way ahead of the game no matter where you're going. It's like Raja Yoga, these meditation techniques that can help you find the door out of that room of your own beliefs, how to get beyond that, which can be helpful to a certain extent. At least you're in the right room. At least you're in the chapel praying. But you want to get out of it. You want to get out to the divine to find that next step. So how, how do we find our own path? Because in this reading it says, you know, to be your own self, be true. Go on alone. You know, once you know where you're going, seek freedom. Don't linger. Go on alone. Well, it's not necessarily an easy thing. And again, we're talking about we've come to the point where we know something is wrong that we're searching. We know there's a divine unity. We know we'd like to express that divine unity. So I'm not even speaking to you know, people who are still wandering a bit more at materialism and you know, a basic institutional religion that can provide a social aspect that can provide, that's great. That's where they're at. I'm talking about most of us here who we're looking for, you know, what is our dharma? What is our path? How do we move forward in this search for self-realization? And it's, um, it's not necessarily a, an easy thing because who's asking the question, what path should I take? Well, it's often our, ourselves still with some ego bondage. If we didn't have that ego bondage, we wouldn't be asking the question. So there's a part of the ego that's asking, well, you know, what's the best path for me? And that ego can often taint that response doesn't it? We can say, well, of course I should go this way because, you know, that's, 
I have aptitudes there, that's my nature, that's what my parents want, that's what society's telling me, that's the way I'm going to earn a lot of money. You know, that's the way I need to go. And so be careful when you're just asking the question yourself. You need to, there's a couple other ways. You can, one, look to other people, people who you trust, who have had a certain amount of experience on the path, a certain amount of experience counseling others, and you can ask them, say, what's my dharma? You know, it says in, this, in the Bhagavad Gita reading that uh, you know, we need to find our own dharma, that doing our dharma, even if we fail, is better than doing someone else's dharma, even if we have success. So ask other people. And one of the advice that may come from that is, you know, your dharma may not be that which you're really good at or that that's what you're really attracted to or that which seems like you're getting pushed that way. It may not be that, you know. Take a close look because what happens? What we're really trying to do is to get out of delusion. I mean, the, the, the spiritual path is getting past desires and attachments. If you move into something that you're really good at and that your society gives you a lot of approval, be it in the form of monetarily or fame or just you know, position, it may do what to the ego? You might get more attached to that definition that I am a performer, I'm a musician, I'm a teacher, I'm an academic, I'm a PhD student. You know, it may not be the best. It might be. It all depends. Can I use that? Can I take this dharma, this duty, can I take that and use it as a vehicle to get out of delusion, to get out of attachment, to get past my desires? Can I use it to get beyond my ego? Am I using it to serve others? And when I am in this dharma, is it taking me out of my little self into an expanded sense of reality? The other thing, of course, that you have to do is you have to ask for guidance. So tune into the guru, tune into divine, whatever, whatever way you can relate to that higher consciousness. And I just uh, <clears throat> want to end with relating a little story, because this is a very, something very personal for me. When I first came to Ananda, I was uh, enrolled in a PhD program at the University of California, Berkeley. And when I moved up here, I was finishing my dissertation. I was writing my dissertation. And the reality was that um, I, was, I had sort of gotten into academia because it was a way that I could look legitimate and do a lot of other things that I wanted to do, like travel around the world and take time off. And, you know, the, a future career path, you could have summer vacations, and I like teaching, but, you know, you get into it, and you're there with all these highly competitive, highly intelligent, egotistical people who are there trying to, you know, wrestle with ideas and mostly tear each other down to make their ideas look better. It's sort of the Yukteswar approach of cutting off the heads of others to make yourself look taller. But, you know, I was in that. And so I came up here and finishing the dissertation wasn't really going all that well. I, would, I was really drawn to the spiritual life of the community much more than finishing my dissertation. But, you know, I'd had a lot invested in this and it was, you know, it was my dharma. I needed to finish this because I was, you know, I was investigating good things, sustainable development and values in development and things like that. But uh, fortunately, I had some wise counsel who, some people who saw me and said, you know, are you sure this is really, you know, what your dharma is, where you should be going? It doesn't really look like it. And 
I, of course, didn't give it up all that easily. I said, well, you know, I don't know. But, you know, I got a lot invested. You know, my parents and the professors. And, you know, there's a lot of energies going this way. So then I said, all right, let me ask for some guidance. And so I went into seclusion. And then I started reading the path. And I opened the path to a point where it said, the devotee who has his foot, feet in two boats quickly falls between the two. I said, oh. <laughs> but still, that wasn't enough. <laughs> so then I meditated some more, and I asked for some more guidance. And I want to read to you the I opened Whispers from Eternity. And this is the guidance that came from Whispers from Eternity. I have burnt my past, destroying every seed of evil destiny. I have stridden bravely through the strewn ashes of my past and future fears. I am the eternal now, having torn to shreds my enclosing cocoon of ignorance with a sharp knife of free will. That goes on from there. <laughs> so I chose not to finish my dissertation, and I've been living here happily ever since doing whatever the guru puts in front of me and embracing that as my dharma.